Bact empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Bact to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty, and rewards points and gift cards. Go to BACKT.com and start treating your digital assets just like cash. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Earn more with your crypto on Kava. Kava is a fully integrated decentralized finance platform that puts the power of lending, borrowing, and trading in the hands of users. Find out how you can take control of your crypto and earn industry-leading yields at kava.io today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And today on the other side of the mic, we have a very good friend of the show, Amy Wu, partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. Amy, we have gone back and forth about gaming, crypto, venture capital far too many times. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. You're leading investments with a focus on consumer crypto and gaming. How's business? It's been very busy this year, Frank. Uh, and thanks for having me on. I feel like a member of the family. <laughs> you know, the other day we were talking about like the difference or rather the importance of a game being fun. And maybe we can start there before we get into some of the numbers of the degree to which gaming NFT trade volume maybe has surged and then come back a bit. But when we think about like what crypto gaming is from your perspective, what is it? It's a good question. And, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And and last week, you know, I was actually just at Slush, which is in Helsinki. And, um, you know, the Nordics is actually home to some of the biggest gaming companies in the world. You know, we have Supercell and Rovio and others got King in Sweden. And um, it really kind of made me reflect on the evolution of blockchain gaming. And I think that, you know, we are very early still, you know, what is it? Fundamentally, I think it's a game with embedded blockchain components. So, you know, tokenized currencies, and then you've got NFTs. And I think the first phase of it that we've seen is this concept of play to earn. And it has sort of given birth to the phenomenon of Axie Infinity, or maybe actually vice versa. Axie sort of brought play to earn to the forefront of a lot, a lot of people's minds in um, having a sort of dual currency um, token. And then also, uh, you know, they have NFT assets and you, they have, you know, what is at this point, I think about two and a half million DAUs of mostly players in the Philippines playing this game on a daily basis and earning money on the platform. And so play to earn has been sort of the first evolution of blockchain gaming, but it's certainly not the last. And, you know, I've been thinking definitely about if this is the first phase, which is you have a lot of players that are playing like less to play the game and actually more to like earn what 
was a supplemental income on Axie Infinity, but now actually is, um, I think, for the most part, side income, you know, as you've seen a lot of SLP volatility. And um, and then sort of what is the next evolution of blockchain gaming? Um, and, you know, I've been definitely thinking through a lot of that. What I think is super unique about getting your perspective is the fact that you invested in games before crypto gaming came to fruition. So you have a special, unique vantage point there. I think a lot of people, when they look at some of the games that exist in the crypto gaming world, they think that a lot of folks are just playing them because they have that earning potential versus them being actually fun. And so then the cycle is less sticky. People come in, they make their money, they come out. So how important is the funness, for a lack of a better word, and how do you see crypto gaming companies actually achieving making a game fun as well as providing some unique economics? Yeah, the, the word fun is definitely a pretty charged term, right? And um, and so I, when I think about games, what they really provide, I think the great games from the last two decades is actually a great sense of meaning. And I probably would lead with that over necessarily fun. When you think about, let's say, you know, I think a lot of people know I'm a, I'm a big fan of EVE Online, uh, one of the great MMOs, and they've been around for over 20 years at this point. And when you think about the players who are, you know, sort of in guilds, sometimes numbering the thousands, and a lot of them have pretty menial tasks in which they're working with others to mine resources, to build ships. Is that fun? Like, I would actually argue, and even I think the CEO, Hilmar, would say that Actually, what these players are getting is deep meaning. They're in a society, a digital one, you know, one could say a precursor to the metaverse or, or maybe even a version of the metaverse. And um, they're deeply embedded in a social fabric. And, and that's what makes them come back day after day. And so, you know, I think like in the early play to earn games such as Axie, you have certainly utility and you have meaning, which is in the form of income. And so the question is, you know, how sustainable are these games, especially when the income level goes down and when there are alternative games out there? Well, I think, you know, we've currently seen, for example, Axie incomes come down significantly. On average, each player is making less than minimum wage now. But, you know, I think what we're seeing is the retention is still really strong. And so, yeah, they're getting a lot of value from the game. I think as, you know, as there are a lot of play to earn games, we'll see how that evolves. But I also think in terms of blockchain games, we haven't even seen, I think, the launch of what are, you know, sort of more traditionally made AAA games that either add blockchain elements to them or in deeply embed and reimagine what are sort of blockchain elements to core gameplay. And I think that those teams are going to be led by some of the great designers and executive producers and and talent coming from both the traditional studios, but then also some of these like next generation gaming companies like Riot and Epic Games. And that's where I, I'm very interested in seeing what some of these games will look like. I definitely want to get into the degree to which traditional games are going to incorporate some of those blockchain elements. But before we get into that, I want to ask, so what happens when the music does stop? in a crypto game in terms of the earning potential decreasing, what do they do? How do you get ahead of that? 
Well, there's a number of ways that, I mean, game companies have thought about how to increase the longevity of players and the degree in which they're playing their game for many, many years, right? I mean, typically a game does have a natural life cycle. Sometimes if it's a hyper casual game, it might be in the span of, you know, a couple of months. A lifestyle in terms of how long someone will play that one specific game or a game brand. That's a really good differentiation. So, yeah, because that's it, super important, right? Yeah, yeah. It tends to be kind of like the rise and fall of that game, right? If you measure it on top, um, from the point of view of maybe like DAUs, MAUs, engagement and mm-hmm. revenue, you know, that's what I'm talking about, the life cycle of that game. And for the most part, a lot of games do have a, a certain life cycle and they might be a couple of months if it's a hyper casual game. It might be, you know, on the span of a couple of years if it's more of like a mid-core mobile or it's called strategy game. And then you have the games that sort of defy gravity and have been, have, you know, sort of reached their peak maybe years after they've launched games like Call of Duty or Counter-Strike, um, World of Warcraft, uh, some of these great MMOs um, and uh, franchises like Pokemon and, and the Blizzard games like Diablo, etc. And these are very complex games that are typically at this point sort of free to play and live operated and much care is given to thinking about a player's journey through that game at the beginning, onboarding, as they go through progression, end game. You know, how do you keep a player coming back day after day or maybe week after week, but then also like through years? And that is very difficult to design. And I think, you know, some of these big gaming publishers that have created some of these huge franchises, I mean, I would say every single publisher and game studio um, platform is thinking about blockchain right now. And there are, I would say like two big concerns. The first one is, or maybe three concerns. The first one is actually regulatory risk. And, um, and so, I mean, and then that kind of falls into a couple of buckets. First is just licensing. You know, there's like potential gambling loss trigger. There is licensing around conversion from fiat to crypto. There is like trading licensing and, uh, money transmission. There's also um, some of these games studios uh, cater to a much younger audience, whether it's games like, you know, um, Minecraft or uh, platforms like Roblox. And so consumer protection laws are also sort of in question. And then I would say another big concern is that there is really strong vocal minority that are very against NFTs and crypto. And I think, you know, we we definitely saw that play out in the recent Discord decision to postpone or or not in, uh, you know, integrate MetaMask Wallet and, and NFT technology to their platform. And some of the reasons, um, you know, there was a huge outcry from, I would say, employees and also some of their um, subscribers, because you've got users thinking that crypto and NFTs are scams, are bad from the environments are also, you know, and also kind of unaffordable for a lot of players. And there's definitely, I think, a lot of education required, for example, on the environmental fronts, you know, people don't understand actually the difference between consensus methods of proof of stake or proof of work. And, um, and some of that lack of education, and also this polarization of views on both sides of the table, make it really hard to have a dialogue. So I think definitely players being really unhappy with um, being surprised with including blockchain is, is a concern. Um, although I do think it's still a minority of players. And then I would say lastly, there are definitely game developers that ask, like, why do I need blockchain, especially when there's um, it's going to bring 
a whole category of speculators onto the game. And they want to keep the audience purely there to have fun and participate in the community and to not bring in players that really are just speculating their token. And um, however, I will say that, um, you know, I've talked to pretty much every major publisher and everyone is very curious and certainly can see the huge potential that, you know, blockchain technology kind of opening up a game economy and allowing a lot of really creative incentivization of both player and creator alike can actually deeply add to a game environment you know, and also experience and also monetization. And so that everyone's like very keen on um, and interested. And I honestly think the evolution is inevitable. To a degree, it just adds another lever for game developers to create a game that's more sticky and engaging for users. Putting aside all of the different impediments that you kind of delineated there, I think what's probably attracting most of the producers you're talking about is the fact that it can help them add more value to the game, which is what they want to do at the end of the day. They want to keep people coming back. One thing that I think is super interesting is the fact that at the end of the day, in non-crypto based gaming, people are putting so much of their time, so much of their resources into it, whether it's through buying different types of skins or just being there, spending hours in front of a screen, and they're getting no economic value from that. So you laid out the flip side of the coin, which is we don't want to disrupt the purity of the game by adding some sort of financialization to it. But on the other side of the coin, that's probably what users want, right? You know, you've put thousands of bucks, whether in capital or in time, into game X. You probably want to be able to leverage that or trade it or swap it for something else. Yeah, I I personally believe in that. I mean, gamers have been buying digital assets and games for decades. And so this is essentially just the next step towards that evolution. And I think that having the ability to invest the time, actually put money into the game to buy these assets, and then sort of have some guarantee that there will be some value coming out of the assets as well is, I think, pretty attractive. You know, if I'm playing two games that are equally fun um, and engaging, you know, like Call of Duty style shooter or something else. But in one game, I can put in the many, many hours I'm going to game and, um, and you know, earn some tokens from that or um, NFTs. It's, it's pretty, I think it would make it more interesting and attractive for gamers. I would say a, a few of the other areas that really attract game makers, one of them is just uh, the ability to have a stickier community from the beginning. You know, you have um, pre-launch, a game may actually take a few years to launch and build. And in that time, you know, NFT drops and will sort of give a game maker the ability to engage the community in a deeper way. You know, they have skin in the game, they own these assets early. Maybe in some cases they can start playing some mini games with these assets. Or in the future, you can they can play use these assets in the universe of perhaps a publisher's other games or even with other publishers. And um and I think user acquisition, community engagement and f- formation is a very powerful use case. For, for blockchain and gaming. And uh, and we've seen, you know, a lot of teams do that. Now, I think that is a use case that has been sort of proven out, like the power of community building with, with blockchain. And what's much harder is, I think of the 
hundreds of blockchain teams that have now formed on the gaming side. There's still very few that I have seen that have deep experience in game making. Not that it is a prerequisite, right? Like I think a lot of gaming, huge gaming companies, whether it's, um, you know, you got Roblox and Minecraft and, and many others are founded by are founded by founders that actually don't have deep gaming experience. And that could very well be the case here. You know, what is sort of like the new Web3 Riot or Web3 Blizzard? Maybe that is actually Blizzard and Riot themselves, but perhaps it is um, also going to be a new studio. But I also think these very experienced game makers that know how to design and balance and live operate complex game economies are still coming into the fold in Web3. And um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the games that they're going to be making. The one point you brought up when you were kind of discussing the issues game developers see in this Web3 gaming world is the expensiveness of it. And I've experienced this too, right? I've you know gone into different metaverse platforms or, or worlds, if you want to call them that. And to get certain skins, hats, objects to tout around. I mean, you're talking $200 just to get the thing. And then another $500 if it's a good day in gas fees. Is this realistic, you know, for games that primarily are being driven by folks within the 14 to 18 year old demographic? Any parent listening to this show already has probably toiled over (laughs) the knock on the door from their 15-year-old asking for the credit card to pay 80 bucks just for a game. Now you got to lop on gas fees and everything else on top of it to make it feasible. Yeah, I think it's um, not sustainable for the next, if you if you think about kind of like the next billion users coming on board, I think in the category of play to earn games in which really you have a two-tier system where you have the earners and then you have the guilds actually owning the assets um, and lending the assets. That is one pillar, you know, in blockchain gaming. But I think in the future larger um, segment of just general, you know, Web3 games, then I I think in in that, as are ready, I think free-to-play is going to be dominant as a game monetization method. And what you'll see is, you know, free-to-play live-operated games of various genres with, with, like, deeply embedded blockchain elements to it. And, you know, these teams that really know how to optimize, like, lifetime value of players and and really thinking through um you know user acquisition may actually think of fronting gas fees as just a user acquisition cost if you look at you know a mobile game that is launching today probably needs to raise on the order of like 100 150 million dollars for user acquisition for the first couple of years alone i mean it is an absolute red ocean of competition and um and I think that, you know, what you have on the blockchain side is another way to acquire users. And so um, I think that some of the future gaming companies might think of gas use just as a user acquisition cost. And then it really brings down the cost to play to ideally free, actually. And one other element is that I think that if you really want to attract, you know, a couple hundred million players into your game, which all of the biggest games today have, then you really need to abstract some of these, the friction of onboarding to blockchain or maybe even blockchain entirely away. And so um, I see games having options for um, integrating sort of non-custodial wallets like a MetaMask or Phantom or, or someone else. Um, and, um, but also an option to have white label custodial wallets 
whether it's via FTX or Forte or one of the other providers. Um, and it may be as easy as me signing on to a game, I'm signing on to my gaming account. And when I do that, I actually have signed up for a crypto wallet that then can start, you know, being a store for NFTs that I buy and other items. And, and as a player, I might actually not have to think about the crypto element at all. I'm just there to play the game. And then there's also, but I think, you know, increasing number of players will also find the crypto part of it fun as well. Does it mean that we need or or gaming companies building in this space need to move away from Ethereum? Is Ethereum plausible in a blockchain gaming situation or does it make it unscalable? I think that if the transaction cost is more than, I don't know, a few cents, then it's probably pretty difficult to scale given that in um, that the largest games in the world have, you know, actually processed millions of transactions on a regular basis. And um, I think that with the L2s on Ethereum, this is very possible. And, uh, and we'll see that probably roll out in the next 12 to 18 months. But today, I would say that to really have that kind of low cost transaction, you can, you know, game makers are building on Solana and Polygon. And uh, maybe in the future, actually, also, you know, Ronin and and Flow and other blockchains, um, Avalanche. But um, as a prerequisite, the transaction fee needs to be, I mean, near zero to reach the scale of transaction volume some of the largest games in the world handles. Back is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Back puts the power in your hands to get your crypto, loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send or spend them using Back. Get started today and get it together with Back. Sign up at backbakkt.com. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. Are you ready to take your crypto earnings to the next level? Kava is a fully integrated decentralized finance platform that combines institutional grade security and user driven design. Lend, borrow and trade your crypto all in one seamless experience. Find out how you can take control of your crypto and earn industry leading reward APYs at KAVA.io today. It's really interesting. I mean, you mentioned that basically every game publisher that you talk to is exploring blockchain outside of the regulatory risk and maybe the barrier to entry for more unsophisticated users. What other problems do they see? Is it is it maybe just too nascent or is there something else hanging over their head? I worry about a couple of things. I worry that, you know, with um, I think that, you know, Axie has been quite innovative and they've evolved into a gaming platform with Ronin at this point. But there's a lot of play to earn games that are quite derivative. And I think there's also the issue of there's hundreds, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of guilds at this point. And there's some really well run ones, but then there's actually some quite predatory ones, you know. And 
I, I think that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of this. What is, do you mean by that? I mean, when, when I see a guild really extracting like 50% or more economics from a player, I personally think it's quite predatory. And you also have like NFT, you do have NFT scams. And I think a lot of this causes noise and, you know, everyone calls themselves Web3 Gaming, but in the reality is that actually very few things are I don't know, I would call it games. It's like another form of maybe like DeFi 2.0 type of type of kind of like financial instruments, maybe more than more than games. And I worry that some of the some of these examples actually turn off some of the great game designers in actually building in this space and actually slow down this category. I personally am a huge believer and I think we are going to get to a state of like, you know, really kind of just gaming um, as a category with blockchain components rather than actually a different, a separate category about three games. But, you know, I think that this might take years to actually develop first and foremost, because some of these great games do take like five plus years to, to develop, but also because some of the big publishers are kind of slower. And, uh, and so I do worry that this vocal minority may, um, of people who are kind of anti-crypto in games may continue to grow which will um, slow down the entire movement. I guess there might be something about the space that gives them good reason to be concerned, right? If you think of a game without crypto, you know, you, you can lose or folks might implement cheat codes or mod something, but you don't have an outsized economic stake in the game that if you were to lose or get front run in some capacity, you're going to be caught holding the bag or or not holding the bag. Yeah, that is a huge problem. So, for example, a game in which, um, you know, sort of they, they maybe had not designed their tokenomics in a very thoughtful way. And what you have is some of the early asset holders of which may be like private guilds, right? Actually, not even the community buying up assets, which immediately appreciate you know, 100 to 1000 X. And I think you're setting up a lot. And then and then you have um, players actually coming in and buying these assets. Well, you're setting up a lot of these players to be very disappointed in actually experiencing um, a lot of asset decay. And when that happens, it, re- it completely distracts from the actual gameplay. And you're not going to have a sustainable game, period. You're, the game cycle should not be a matter of weeks or months. It really should be a matter of years. And so how do you actually drive you know, how how, sh- how do you really drive this in the long term? Well, the primary reason for some of these games with the longest longevity is not going to be around NFT speculation at all. It ultimately will actually just be about gameplay, in my opinion. And, you know, if they actually grind out and, and you know, and, you know, beat some of the game modes and win some NFTs that they can then sell or trade, like that is an additional, I think, you know, benefit to the game. It cannot be the main driver of playing. Which I think is probably the pitch, right, to skeptic game developers who don't want to get involved. And then we we already kind of talked about some of the benefits that can be derived from a crypto gaming experience or even a metaverse gaming experience, which I think plays into this whole narrative. Yeah. One thing I will mention is that Mobile gaming and also the beginning of free to of the concept of free to play actually very intertied together, but also actually was met with a similar degree of skepticism from the AAA gaming community. You know, they thought that it was um, 
lesser games, you know, not high fidelity until, you know, you have some of these great studios like Supercell or, you know, Playrix that came and just um, King that transformed the the industry and, and demonstrated they can create these very long-standing games um, played by actually at this point a much larger audience than, you know, PC console um, and, uh, and PC games. And uh, that really kind of legitimize the the category and and I suspect something similar of a cycle will happen in Web3 gaming as well. That there will be skepticism until there are great games that are more great games that are um, you know that have been launched and proven to sort of been adapted by hundreds of millions of players. All right. So we've talked a lot about crypto gaming. I know that's just part of your wheelhouse over at Lightspeed, which is increasingly becoming more interested in the crypto market, if I understand correctly. What's going on with venture overall right now? We just saw, and I, I you know, I don't want you to comment necessarily specifically on one of your own investments, but listeners of the show and readers of the block saw FTX announcing their $18 billion raise, followed by their, I think it was $25 billion raise. Now there's a $32 billion raise on the table. Companies are just raising at a breakneck clip. How do you keep up as an investor? Oh, man, it's really difficult to keep up as an investor. I actually just feel like, you know, um, <laughs> I'm missing investments and opportunities left and right. But it's just testament to how much innovation and how many great entrepreneurs that are jumping into this space. It is, and I believe, kind of like the internet or the mobile revolution of of my generation of investors and just absolutely, I mean, just so grateful to honestly be alive in this time and and, and working in this space. So maybe a little bit about Lightspeed. You know, we're a large generalist VC fund. We've been around for about 25 years and have about $15 billion under management. Um, got partners across, um, you know, continents, um, across working across stage and also category of VC. And, um, you know, I cover crypto and gaming exclusively for Lightspeed. And we've actually been investing in crypto for um, since 2014 now with um, Jeremy Liu, who runs our consumer team, um, leading our first investments in companies like blockchain.com and, you know, Bitmain and, and others back in the day. And uh, and then the last year, you know, I came, you know, I raised my hand and started leading investments in crypto. Uh, and we have really deepened our level of investments. We have at Lightspeed total of about 35 investments across crypto, I would say, you know, CFI, DeFi, Web3, and um, 22 of them we have made investments in this year, you know, almost, I think, half a billion dollars deployed. Uh, and, you know, I think, and uh, many of them are, are early stage, and most of those companies are actually in DeFi and, and Web3, you know, companies uh, like Arbitrum and, um, and Aave and Xeron, you know, Parallel Finance. Solana, you know, so we're investors across L1 ecosystems and also sort of both really excited about the um, application layer and also infrastructure layer, you know, like Alchemy and some of the areas that we're most excited about, you know, beyond Web3, which is, I include gaming and also sort of social networks and just consumer tech, you know, that, that have incorporated blockchain is also infrastructure security and insurance in crypto, I think that these are very nascent categories, you know, on the infra side and developer tooling, it is still very difficult to uh, build on core blockchains. There's a lot of different 
elements to it that could be abstracted away eventually, like they have been in Web2. And, you know, we're exciting. We're excited to be investors in Alchemy. And then today just announced our investment in Mistin Labs with Evan Chang, who are all sort of uh, looking at the space um, and really focusing on the developer community. And then on the um, exchange side, you know, we have um, FTX is one of our largest investments. And uh, they haven't, they, they have, you know, raised quite a quite a bit of money, but you know, it's actually one of the lar- second largest crypto exchange in the world at this point. Um, founded just two and a half years ago, and you know, at this point, expanding you know beyond exchange, which there's a lot of room to grow, both juris- um, jurisdiction wise and also from a product perspective. But also, they have you know launched FTX Wallet. They're in payments. They're increasingly looking at Web three, like with their NFT marketplace launch, and so it has really become quite a platform company. And I think, you know, when we look at the next, you know, $100 billion companies or the next trillion dollar companies, like um, sort of the next generation of the Fangs and, you know, the Tencent Alibaba's in the world, you know, they could well be in Web3 and crypto and uh, with the underlying blockchain technology, but then also, you know, branching out into other categories of products, both in enterprise and consumer. And so that's why you see, Pretty much every investor very interested in this category, certainly generalist VCs and hedge funds this year. You've seen um, many funds come in, including um, Lightspeed much more aggressively. We're all raising kind of, um, there's a number of funds raising separate crypto funds. We're trying to do it in their core funds um, like we have to date. And, you know, also kind of working through a lot of challenges, right? Like, you know, invest, figuring out how to invest structurally in tokens, how to participate in governance, stake, and otherwise are all like challenges that I would say um, generalist funds are still figuring out. You raise a really interesting point that I think about a lot when it comes to investing in companies like FTX, which for the most part today are making money from trading fees in derivatives and spot trading. I look at investor notes on Coinbase, which is obviously a publicly traded company, and the thesis underpinning a much higher price target is that there are these other opportunities for them to make more money, even if trading fees compress. What is that big money-making opportunity for a company like an FTX or a Binance or a Coinbase that will make a company like that worth a trillion dollars in your view? I think there's a few different elements and there's a lot of different ways, you know, that these companies can really evolve, you know, starting with the exchange. I think first and foremost, it's a core business is still, you know, still has a ton of room and penetration. If you think about, I think there's still on the order of, you know, a few hundred million people that are trading crypto globally. And so there's still billions more to be on, onboarded over time. You know, if you look at the population of people that trade equities and, you know, what if everybody actually, you know, also traded crypto and eventually there's going to be um, actually in retirement products and, and other products as well. And so just in the core market. So, for example, like U.S. futures is still not on the grid in terms of licensing and, you know, who knows who's going to be the first exchange to do that. I think, you know, FTX hopes to be, but a lot of exchanges are looking at that license right now. And, uh, and then, so, so first and foremost, expanding the penetration of crypto traders. If we're thinking about the number of people that crypto 
touches today. It is small relative to equities. But if you look at something like the market cap of Intercontinental Exchange, it's only 74 billion, right? Which would be 3x what an FTX would be. Where's the 10, 15x coming from? Yeah, I think that's where I think one, it's um, in traditional finance exchange is one piece of the stack. And we have vertical stack businesses in crypto exchange side. We call them exchange, but actually they're direct to consumer platform, but also the clearinghouse, the order book, the technology, the underlying technology. So, you know, they can expand their B2B business. So they actually are extending crypto trading and transaction capabilities across a very broad range of fintechs, banks, um, actually eventually um, enterprise companies. And this is actually piggybacking off of this larger trend of, you know, everyone's becoming a fintech company, whether you're, you know, Amazon or whether you're, you're Shopify, your commerce companies are becoming fintech companies. And so fintech is becoming a very large sort of, um, you know, category with sort of multiple hundred billion dollar businesses and growing, you know, I think the Stripe C, um, IPO is going to be actually quite far north of 100 bill. And um, and there will be more companies like that to, to follow sort of in the payments and payment infrastructure space. And these are all categories that are currently adjacent to these crypto exchanges that eventually they could also get into. And then beyond that, there's also further direct-to-consumer businesses, right? There are There's a whole category of Web3 businesses that are really like consumers, whether it's social networks or gaming companies and otherwise, of which there are many sort of 100 billion plus businesses that are looking at crypto and crypto native companies are looking the other way. And so, you know, could there be a large company that will become sort of the next like Web3 Tencent? I think absolutely. I want to sort of just talk about you a little bit for a second, because I really do think you're one of the most interesting and dynamic investors in our space. And the sort of pedigree here is is fairly impressive. I don't ask a lot of career type questions to folks on the show, but you're a board observer for several firms. You're an advisor to several firms, an investor in several firms. How do you manage your time and, and what do you attribute most to your success? Oh, gosh. I mean, yeah, the, the hardest thing to scale in an investor's life is really time. Um, and uh, I wake up pretty much every day thinking, you know, what it is I can do that's value add for the portfolio companies that I'm working with. Um, you know, at Lightspeed, we really don't invest broadly. You know, I, I have peers that have invested in hundreds of companies this year. You know, I've done about 20. And um, and I, you know, these are companies where I am on the phone or texting with the founder or management team on a daily or certainly weekly basis. And we take a lot of pride, you know, in being kind of really hands-on working with these founders day in, day out. And that can be a very, I think, empty statement for a lot of founders that say, you know, actually every investor tells me that on the way in. But, you know, I think, you know, hopefully the founders can really say, you know, I have 50 investors in my cap table and who's spending time with me and, and adding value. I really like to build deep relationships and and really understand the ecosystem deeply. Like when I look at investors that I re- deeply admire, respect, and always try to emulate, you know, there are people like Matt Huang, 
from Paradigm, you know, who whose team honestly co-develops with um, with protocols. Or when I think about Kyle Samani and um, and the ecosystem that he's and the community that he's helped build along with the Solana team, you know, these are people that I really want to emulate and and have tried to. Or, you know, like Paul from Pantera, who actually got me to crypto in the first place. And so that has always been pretty authentic to me and and hopefully will continue to be the way that, I, you know, I, I invest and operate. It sounds like just giving portfolio companies a bit of yourself, a bit of your time to prove that a you're lot of my time, yeah. I, you know, I'm often that call at 2 a.m. when things are hitting the fan. And, you know, I always want to be there for the, the founder and team. How does an investor add value during those 2 a.m. calls? What what type of things are they asking you to keep from hitting the fan? You know, the 2 a.m. calls are usually bad news, <laughs> not good news. And um, they're like, Please make sure Frank doesn't write about this. <laughs> yeah, that's that too, of course. I'm sure Frank always finds out. You always find out anyway. The but I think in those times, um, I think they I think a founder really just typically wants to know that that you're there to support them when things are not going well. And the answer is yes, of course. You know, like we're here for the 10 plus year journey and we're well aware that. Things are going. Things are going to go up and down. We might be in a bear market, you know, um, and you might we might lose a co-founder. Whatever happens, like we basically get married with a founder. Like when we sign that, when we mutually sign that term sheet, and we're really with them for for um, the long run, regardless of what happens. And and I think that during those times, like they kind of just like want to to hear that, and also walk through maybe some of the options that the founder is thinking through. And other times, you know, some of these late night calls are actually just on the way into an investment, the founder wanting to get a feel for how, you know, whether whether an investor really is kind of like available 24-7. And, and we really take great pride in being so. Well, Amy, I think it was a great philosopher. I can't remember the name who said that time is the most valuable thing a man and of course, a woman has to spend. So we appreciate you spending the time with us tonight. Where can our listeners learn more about what you are doing over there at Lightspeed? Um, yeah, thanks so much, Frank, for having me on. You're a long um, fan of your podcast. And um, if people want to follow along, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Amy Tongwu. And, uh, you know, I share a lot of what I'm thinking about real time on there and uh, and have a lot of you know, and on DM friends from there as well. So feel free to, to ping me. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back with you next time with another great guest. Thanks for tuning in.